Hey, what is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of My Blind Life. I am your host, Stephen Mike, and today we have a special treat for you guys. Got one of my best friends, one of my great friends, Dominic A. Parker, on the show tonight. But uh, I do want to apologize because I did have a phone call in the middle of this uh, interview. So you will hear. Um, okay, it was so it wasn't a phone. It was a scammer. You know those scammers keep calling people. Yeah, so I had one of those on my phone when I had when I was interviewing Dominic, and there was no way for me to uh, cut out the beeps of the call waiting thingy without cutting his uh, his interview, and I surely did not want to do that. And then not not only that, but in the middle of the interview. I had technical difficulties because I I, had, I didn't I moved to a new city in Texas and I had to set up my my whole studio again and since this was the first time recording um not everything was set up correctly and that was definitely on me. So I do want to apologize to all of you. I want to apologize to Dominic for the uh not so perfect interview, but hey, it was a great interview. Um so back to Dominic. I I, I, did, uh, I spoke to him about his uh, how he became blind, um, his time at the uh, psychiatric hospital, um, his time uh, as an admin on one of the what used to be big groups, uh, Facebook groups, blind Facebook groups, and now the project that he's doing. Um, he's one of my good friends, one of my awesome friends. He always has some wise wise words for me whenever like I'm I'm feeling down or like I'm. I've, Need some help in any any way. So I want to introduce you guys to Dominic Parker. Welcome to My Blind Life. One, two, three, four. Boom, you're live. What's up, Dom? Hey, Steven. Finally got you on the podcast after <laughs> how long? How long has it been? <laughs> Man, it feels like forever since we tried to plan this out, but I'm glad to be here. Right, finally, finally got you on here. All right, man, so... What you what you been up to? I haven't spoke to you straight up like in what months possibly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's been a minute, I must say. <laughs> How you been? How's Georgia treating you? Uh, well, you know we got a um, we got some of that weather coming our way from Hurricane, Hurricane Sally. Sally, so, right? Yeah, yeah. So anybody that's dealing with that, please be safe out there. Man, but, um, we just we just recently got hit with uh, well, barely missed it by Hurricane Laura. So, oh wow! Yeah, so we were right, right there with you guys. Yeah, it, and you know, and right now, and even though it's not hitting us directly, it's kind of hitting Alabama, and I want to say um, Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah, we're still kind of getting the after effects of it in Georgia. So yeah, dang, yeah, so yeah. With us, uh, we were, we were gonna get hit by Hurricane Laura like straight, but at the last minute, it hooked right. So, and we got to the, we got to be on the west side of the hurricane. That's the like the least dangerous side mm-hmm. so we were we got lucky all we got was like rain and, and a little bit of wind but not too much but uh we ended up evacuating some of us evacuated uh Nacogdoches where I'm from now mm-hmm. and uh we kind of didn't have to just because it hooked the last minute but uh you know better safe than sorry than anything <laughs> yes yeah, yeah that's true that so, is true how you been with uh your whole uh, um your new project blind justice Oh man, um, this is new territory for me. Yeah, I know that. Um, as I'm, you, I'm sure you are aware as well. I have always kind of been the sidekick at best. 
so um you know somebody's robin today batman or they're patrick to their spongebob <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so this is kind of new territory for me to kind of step out on my own but um I'm kind of liking it. It's really giving me the opportunity to kind of grow into who I am and to um, really just, you know, do all of that and just enjoy the journey. So, yeah, so far, I mean, that's something that I, I've known you uh, for being passionate about, about like just putting content out there for for the blind and visually impaired and getting people who are blind and visually impaired, just like just like this podcast, but like your own form, your own avenue of doing that. And I. I applaud you for that because now, like you said, like you're not a sidekick anymore. Like you are, you are the one, you know? So I, I definitely applaud you for that, man. Yeah. Yeah. Finally stepping out. So, all right, man. So let's get into the, let's get into the podcast, man. So you know what this is. You get to tell your story from your words, your eyes, and let everyone know who Dominic Parker is. So um, let's start from the beginning. Um, introduce everyone to who you are. Like, let them know who you are, what your condition is how old you are, and then we'll start from when little Dominic was born. Okay. Well, hello, everybody. Um, my name, my full name is actually Dominic Antoine Parker. I am 35 years old, so um, hello to all my Pisces out there, uh, March 16th. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and I actually suffer from um, diabetic retinopathy, So, and my vision is total, so everything is black. Um, did you go yeah, blind? So, did you go blind from birth, or it was later on? No. Well, um, so I actually because I had diabetes from a young age and just poor management, it just ended up getting worse over time. Um, but so okay, so um, okay, so you said from birth. Okay, so yeah, let's let's yeah. go from okay. <laughs> look, I, look, I got a timeline in my head, so I'm like, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. And so um. Okay, so like I said, I was born on March 16th. Um, I'm actually a military brat. So both of my parents were in the military. Um, my father was a drill sergeant, and my mother actually, although she didn't like it, she worked on cars. Um, uh-huh. So, yeah, so when I tell you, we traveled a lot. So, you know, I've been to Honolulu, Hawaii. I've lived in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Atlanta, Georgia. We've been all over the place. Um, How was that, so tra- like, traveling? And this was as a, as a child, right? You were traveling? Yeah, like, I mean, and a, a lot of it, I only remember bits and pieces of it because I was, like, a little kid, like, before starting school, kind yeah. of like, um, maybe, like, first grade or something like that. But, um, yeah, so a lot of it is still kind of hazy. I do have very vivid memories of being in Hawaii, though, and that was amazing oh, of course you can't forget um, hawaii <laughs> oh, of course right yeah of all places you better not forget hawaii <laughs> um but yeah it's so it's funny um what was i gonna say i was gonna okay i was gonna talk about my um my name i'm actually named after the basketball player dominique wilkins my man uh, yeah (laughs) atlanta hawks yeah um but the funny thing is is my mom was like dominique is a girl's name so let's name him dominic yeah um and then of course because i was a boy my father had the the joy of being able to name me but my mom always said if she had a girl she would want to name her um with the same you know first initial as her name because her name is alice yeah it's the middle name antoine so okay yeah yeah so um going on a little bit further um you know when we finally settled down after moving around and both of my parents got out of the military we settled down in atlanta and um 
we pretty much, like I said, that's where I started school at. But once I got to Atlanta, um, that's when my parents decided that they were going to divorce. So at the age of nine, it's actually when I, they divorced. And I'm not quite sure exactly if um, this is true or not, but for those of you guys who may um, either have diabetes or know about diabetes, I'm actually a type one, so I'm a juvenile diabetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me. Um, and so with that, I, I, I was told that a lot of times traumatic um, and, you know, situations or instances can kind of bring on the onset of it because it's genetic in that case when it's type one. Yeah. So um, along with my parents getting divorced, that was the same year I also found out that I was diabetic. So you took it pretty hard then. You know, the crazy thing is, is that when you're that young, I mean, what I believe is that when you're that young, it's almost kind of like all you just look at the world as like, sunshine and lollipops so the only concerns i had was what, what i was gonna play when i went outside or yeah. you know what cartoons were coming on on saturday afternoon sure um so i know my mom did a lot of my health care stuff so like medications and doctor's appointments and all of that she was really in charge of that probably all the way through elementary middle and all the way up to high school um you know, so the, the diabetes at that point in time was what I would consider was really well maintained. Yeah. Um, and so when I got to high school, and I'm going to kind of jump back and forth a little bit because sure. there's some other stuff I want to touch on. Yeah. But um, when I got to high school is when my mother actually got pregnant with my youngest brother. And um, she came to me and she was like, well, you know, I got a, you know, newborn I got to take care of. So I'm going to have to make sure that, you know, you can kind of handle the diabetes. And at that point in time, it was like, one, I didn't want to be diabetic from, you know, point number one, because it's like, okay, well, I got to take shots and I got to watch what I eat and I can't just be like all the other kids. So I never made my peace with it. Yeah. Um, And so thrown into the responsibility soon then. Exactly. Or at least like a build up or a work up to being able to be kind of, um, you know, responsible on that level. But I guess, at least from my eyes, I guess from having that kind of like thrown to the wolves aspect, I completely rejected it. Um, Yeah, it was like, I don't want to deal with it. I'm going to ignore it, act like it's not there. And the the crazy thing about it is that um, for those of you guys who may be diabetic or know about diabetes, especially type one, you have to take multiple shots a day you know, to control, you know, your blood sugar and things of that nature. I might have been taking one shot maybe every two weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's because and a you lot, just rejected it? Like you just didn't I, care? Yeah, yeah, I didn't want it. I didn't care about it. I felt like it was something that made me different. Yeah. Um, and, and literally the times that I would take shots at that period of my life was only simply because I was like minutes away from having to be admitted to the hospital. Shit. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, drinking, partying, you know, and just living, you know, at least what I consider to be the life, it was just, it was crazy. And so, um, the bad part about it for me was that it was like, because I had all those years of having good management, you know, thanks to my mom, um, it almost seemed as if I had a really, really strong bounce back, if you will. Like I was always, um, I would, I would get sick. I'd take a shot and then bam, within a matter of hours, I'd be back to normal as if nothing had ever happened. Yeah. 
so it kind of created this false narrative in my mind that I was invincible. And you guys, this, this type of behavior like continued well until like my mid twenties. Wow. Um. Yeah. I mean, just completely like demolishing my body. Um. And I, like I said, at the time, I just didn't care. Um. So when a, what age did that start? Where the I know you said you were in high school, but do you remember what age or like what grade were you in when you started rejecting it? Like now, I'm not gonna take care of myself. So I was 15 when my youngest brother was born. So I'm going to say my sophomore, junior year. And well into your 20s. Wow. All the way into my 20s, yep. Yeah. So and it, it, it was crazy. Um, so again, you know, continuing to kind of go in this chronological order. Yeah. Um, so after graduating high school, um, you know, I had a multitude of jobs. When I tell you, I've been like, a, I've worked as a bank teller. Uh, what else? I've worked as a um, I don't even know what the job title is, but you know how like at, at like pavilions or like outside theaters and stuff like that, like the people who come set up the barricades and the oh, and yeah. the gates and stuff. Yeah. yeah, I've done that. Um, I've worked at Walmart as a um a railway attendant during Christmas time. No, oh, no, mind you, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> so yes, you know I got stories to tell. Um, um. I was a cashier at Walmart. Um, I did bagging and um, cashier at like Publix, at Kroger, which are grocery stores for those of you guys who may not know. Mm -hmm. um, I've worked at a furniture store. I've been a dancer with a um, a, a dance company called Atlanta Fever. Hold on, I... hold on, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> so you say dancer. Do you mean like stripper or like... <laughs> With a name like Atlanta Fever, you're probably like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so the way that I like to explain that to others is that um, some of you guys may be aware of the, I don't know if they still air it, but the MTV show My Super Sweet 16. Yeah. So essentially our company was out there to cater to, vent or not vendors, but um, customers who held lavish parties like that. So let's say, like, for instance, Stephen, you were like, okay, well, I want to give my daughter a, a crazy, like, 17th birthday party, and I want elephants and giraffes and monkeys and, you know, fireworks and, you know, yeah. trapeze artists. You would call us up. Oh. And so our company, right. And But one of the things that we offered was we would also, like, if you, if you had the venue, we would bring the stage, we'd bring the lights, the the platforms, the DJ, and then they also had a troupe of dancers as well. And so our job, while, you know, everybody was partying, was to kind of get out in the crowd, get up on the stage, and keep everybody who was partying engaged in the party and having a good time. So you're basically like the hype man. Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, I guess you can kind of see it like that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so, for, but I dancing mean, like, we, hype man. Okay, I guess. Right. Exactly. Because <laughs> yeah. I mean, we never got on. Like, we never got on the mic. We never did anything like that. We just simply were there to dance. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So yeah, I was a, a dancer with Atlanta Fever. So no stripping or no exotic <laughs> dancing. <laughs> um. I'm trying to think of what else. Okay. Uh, the actual job that I had um, that's probably the more interesting out of all of these is I actually worked in a mental health prison as a mental health medical records clerk. Okay. So, okay. All these jobs were before you were blind, correct? 
Correct. Okay, okay. Just to make sure, because I don't want to like, how how was he doing all this while he was blind? I just want to make sure everyone knows this. Before Dominic went blind, these were his jobs. Yes, <laughs> right. yes they, they were. And actually, the um the the job that I had at the prison was actually a job that I when I started to lose my vision, that was the job that I actually had was while at the um but at the prison because I remember waking up one morning for um work and i guess getting up early enough to where i can turn my alarm clock off before i got up which i'm notorious for i need to stop that <laughs> um, <laughs> and waking up to do so and there being a big blur spot in the middle of my vision oh okay. so yeah but um let me back up a little bit yeah, um, some stories of mental health uh, uh prison stories oh man so well actually let me and uh, let me go back to college okay, so yeah. when um so when I when um when I graduated high school, I started having all of those jobs, and then after a while, I was like, okay, you know what? I got to do something with my life because I'm just floating around all over the place. So um, I had an uncle who actually went to um, Job Corps, and he suggested it, and so I wanted to go to the one in Atlanta, but the one in Atlanta um, it had both both boys and girls, but to stay on campus, you had to be a female. Yeah. And it was important enough for me. I was like, I got to get away from home. So I got to, you know, leave. And it just so happened that one of the centers that was suggested was the one in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, So I actually went there. And um, while I was there, I actually um, ended up learning, which I guess makes sense about the whole entire medical um, records clerk was I actually ended up getting um, certified as far as like a medical receptionist. Um medical terminology and then i actually ended up becoming a certified health unit coordinator oh, okay. um yeah so that was kind of like my first kind of real uh experience yeah yeah like, like kind of like my come with somewhat of a um a college experience yeah um yeah. and the crazy thing like with i was there i was on sga you know we did um I was actually on a dance team, hence, you know, Atlanta Fever. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it it really kind of gave me that school aspect that um, I hadn't had in a while once, you know, I had gotten out of high school. Yeah. So, yeah, so I'm not quite sure if Job Corps still running it the same, but I know when I was there, you were only allowed to stay like in the program for like two years unless you were actually enrolled in a college, you know, actually taking college courses. Yeah. And so even though I was already enrolled in some college courses, I guess because I was from out of state, they went ahead and sent me back home. But it was when I came home that I actually signed up with, um, Lanier Technical College, and I ended up becoming a um, certified pharmaceutical technician. So you ended up going back home to Georgia? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, you know, and again, like I said, that was, like I said, I ended up becoming a, a pharmaceutical technician, but I couldn't really find any jobs in that field. And so that's when, because my mom actually worked at the same prison that I was employed at. And so... She originally wanted me to sign on as a correctional officer, but uh, yeah, wasn't gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so so how tall are you? How big are you? Because aren't those dudes supposed well, to be like, uh... yeah, like buff and yeah, yeah. like no, yeah. I, well, I'm tall. I'm actually six foot, but I'm nowhere near buff. A strong wind will come and blow me away. <laughs> so, <laughs> that is not the, the job for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
But like I said, while, you know, she wanted me to get the job and I even went through the process of getting hired as a correctional officer, but it just so happened that they had an opening back in medical. And then that's how I ended up um, getting on with the medical, um, the medical records clerk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm sure as a lot of you guys are probably like, well, I know he got stories there, um, you know, because of rules. I can't really discuss it. But sure. <laughs> <laughs> but when I I mean, but when I when I tell you it was one of the few mental health prisons in Georgia. Um, and again, you really kind of just get to see like the ins and outs of a lot of some of these mental illnesses, how they affect people, you know, what makes them do what they do, um, the medications. I mean, it's. It's a really intricate system, and it really kind of just shows you that wow, like th- this is this is crazy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, what can you share? Hmm. It's okay. So, what was one of the craziest stories I'm, I've heard of or experienced? Is that kind of what you're asking? That that that's up to you. Whichever you prefer to say. Well, I will say um, I had some definitely crazy experiences. I know that the okay, so in medical, you guys know what an abscess is. So it's kind of like a pocket that may contain like fluid or um, (laughs) pus or whatever. So I'll never forget we had a medical doctor and her name. Well, her name was Carrie. And the funny thing was, is that um, whenever they had to do procedures with the inmates, they always needed to have someone else in the office with them. Sure. And so we had like a security guard that was on, you know, duty. But for whatever reason, this security guard had just really gotten MIA. And so she called me into the office. Now, sidebar, you guys, at the time, at least, like blood and sputum and pus and Y'all, it, it, it literally, I just get like weak and pass out. So I'm not, she's not preparing me what's about to take place. She literally just needs me to stand, you know, in the office with her. So I'm like, okay, you know, no big, you know, no big deal. I'm turned around, I guess, as she takes the needle because the, the, the abscess was actually behind his ear and oh. it was literally so huge that it was pushing his ear forward and closing it. Ooh. Um, yeah. So I must have been turned around because the back of his ear was not facing me. So I must have been turned around when she was numbing it up with the needle and taking out the, you know, the, um, the, I guess the, the, the scapula. Am I saying it right? Hell, I should know this, should not. Scalpel? Yeah, the scalpel. What did I call it? A scapula? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. It's been a while. <laughs> so, but, um, so as I'm doing it, or as she takes it out and cuts into it, I'm actually turning around. And have you guys, I guess for those of you guys who are blind, who may not have ever seen it, imagine, have you guys ever heard of Cheese Whiz? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of Cheese Whiz. <laughs> okay, so imagine it's like this, Cheese Whiz is like a little can, and it's almost like an aerosol can that has this tiny little nodule on top of it that when yeah. you press the nodule down, oh, cheese no. squirts out of it. <laughs> When I tell you guys, I turned around and literally as she's pressing this man's ear and the side of his head together, this pus is literally like squirting out of the back of his oh. head. And I literally, <laughs> oh and, not, and not even the, like, not even the sight <laughs> of that, but the smell of it, that smelled like pure, like garbage, like, like rancid landfill garbage that, 
I literally started to <laughs> I literally started to collapse to the floor. Oh, and as I'm falling, the the guard that was supposed to be in there happened to just walk by and catch me as I started to fall onto the floor. So it Oh it, my god. Yeah, it's it was bad. I oh man. Um you know again, um and I hope that this comment is not triggering for some. Um you know, when you talk about mental health, you tend to talk about like depression and things of that nature. So we did have a lot of um, inmates who were dealing with suicide and yeah, suicide attempts and stuff like that. Sure. Um, so, you know, again, being in prison, a lot of times um, they don't have the we try to keep away from them the things that are able to help them to carry out that type of activity. Um, but of course, you know, prisoners can be quite, you know, crafty. So it's like to like have to go into medical and see some of the things that people have shoved into their arms or into their wrists to try to commit suicide but didn't quite do it. Yeah. And then having to go and and you know surgically having to take stuff like that out. So it 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 was not cute at all at all. And of course, you have people who want to get creative. Um the arms and the wrist are not always the popular parts. Yeah. Um, when you have somebody who's dealing with some mental health issues, along with finding creative ways or instruments to use, they also find creative body parts to kind of get done what they need to get done. And so even stuff like that is like, oh, man, it's just... Yeah. Man, I know it makes you, you cringe. You gotta be like, strong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... That's intense. Yeah, it makes me my skin kind of crawl as I talk about it now. Um, but but um, the crazy thing about all of this is, I guess, getting back on the whole blind aspect of things. Um, while working here is when I actually started to see the effects of me not taking care of myself for all of those years. Yeah. So um, while I actually worked at this particular prison, I think me and a coworker of mine were on the way outside to go get some files out of like a shed. And you guys, when I tell you, it was like this, this like freakish spider that like literally must have dropped out of nowhere, like something out of like Arachnid or Spider Man or something like that, <laughs> and, <laughs> and it bit me on my leg. Oh no! So, yeah, and so I'm like, oh god, here we go. But of course, again, you know me, I'm, in, I'm in, invincible. So I'm like, all right. So I get out into the car that day as I'm getting ready to leave from work, and it had already started to form like a boil on top of my leg. So first mistake that I ever made, I decided to pop the bump. But instead of the poison going out, it actually went into my leg. Oh. So now it's time to rush to the hospital. Yeah. So, of course, while I'm there... They were able to kind of milk out the um, the poison, which was cool, but they also noticed some signs of distress within my heart. Um, it was then when they um, diagnosed me with congestive heart failure. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, and for those of you guys who don't know, congestive heart failure is a, pretty much when your heart is not pumping what it needs to pump or at the efficiency that it needs to pump for you know your body you know your who you know what makes you up you know your height your weight all of that um i believe you're considered to be in congestive heart failure if the numbers haven't changed when you reach 60 percent or below so um at that time you know they start surgery they're trying to make sure there's no blockages to see what they can do 
and I have to start doing exercises to strengthen my heart. Yeah. So it was at that time that I was able to strengthen my heart above 60. So I'm actually no longer in congestive heart failure. But again, while at the hospital, my father comes to visit me. And I remember being on the top floor and having like the windows like wide open, curtains drawn back. And for some strange reason, I didn't even think about it. But my father was like, Are the, is the light really hurting your eyes? Because it's like you're really straining to see. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I guess, I don't know. So he's like, well, we're going to take you to the doctor when you get out of here. So he schedules me an appointment to see my eye doctor. And um, my eye doctor's like, well, I can see the effects of the diabetes on your eyes. So we need to take you to see a retinopathist. So I go, okay, cool, you know. By this time, I'm in and out of doctor's offices, so it's no big deal to me. I, you know, I don't care. Yeah. I go to see the retinopathist, and of course, that's when they're like, at this point, they had noticed that um, the veins in the back of my eyes had been leaking blood into my eyes instead of supplying oxygen. And that the um, blood had started to create scar tissue on my retinas. Now, at that point, they had a couple of options. One, they needed to do surgery to go in, um, take the scar tissue off the retinas, and stop the bleeding from the back of of the eye. Sure. Then they also needed to go in and dry up the excess blood that had now been pooling in my eye. And to do that, they needed to give me ocular injections. All I had to hear was injection and I, and I was out of there. I don't want to have no <laughs> shot or nothing. So like the majority of my life, I, again, acted like it didn't exist. I didn't want nothing to do with it. That was just that on that. Well, again, which catches me up to what I was saying earlier. One morning I was getting ready for work. And before I could even get up to turn the, the uh, alarm clock off, I had like this in the middle of my vision was like this little tiny little gray blur spot. Now I can see everything around the blur spot, but right dead smack in the center, it was just gray. Wow. So of course now I'm freaking out. Yeah. So now it's time to go to the emergency room. So I'm like, you guys got to do something. You got to fix this. What's going on? And at that time, the emergency room was like, we can't do anything. All you can do is just have, you know, you know, go to your eye surgeon and, you know, see if they can fix it. Mm-hmm. So now at this time, I have to get the eye injections. They have to do the surgery. They have to do all of these things. Um, So, of course, I toughed it out. They gave me the ocular injections. And um, they actually were able to go in and remove the scar tissue from the retina. But the way that the doctor made it sound was that imagine taking a sheet of paper that has duct tape on it and trying to peel the duct tape off without tearing the piece of paper. Damn. So, yeah. So, needless to say, the more they peeled, the more retina was being detached. So, after a series of about eight or nine um, operations, my doctor eventually, because it was like after after each operation, it was like, okay, well, it got worse. And then the next one, he'd be like, well, this one is going to be the one that's going to fix it. You're going to be good. Then it would get worse. Well, this one is going to be the one to fix it. You're going to be good. And then it would get worse. And so finally, at one point in time, he was just like, I'm not doing you any good. I'm just going to have to stop. And so if something becomes available, um, you know, like artificial retinas or something like that, then I will, um, you know, throw you in the, um, I don't want to say test subject, but you kind of get what I'm saying, like the the trial. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. um, For that. 
But he was like, aside from that, we're just going to have to stop. So what he did was is he actually put oil on the inside of my eyes and um, to keep my eyes, you know, formed and, you know, circles. Because for those of you guys who are blind who know when you're like a muscle, when your eye is not being used, it will, you know, draw back up. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, kept me on... Um, kept me on eye drops to kind of, you know, make sure that my eyes stay strong enough and would be able to withstand the surgery. Yeah. But, oh, the journey is not over. <laughs> so, <laughs> so before all this started, like, so how old were you when this happened? Because, like, honestly, man, fuck. <laughs> how old were you? So the blur spot actually came in December of 2012. So I would have been... 27 going on 28 oh shit so not even that long ago mm -hmm. okay all right yep yeah this year will actually be in december this will be eight years seven or eight years one of the two i believe eight but i'm not quite sure yeah okay so before we go into your blindness story um all right you do have the other part of you that i know of um you do identify as a gay mm -hmm. man yes Okay, so at what point did you uh, find out about yourself, find that out about yourself? You know what's crazy? Um, I, I, and when people ask me this, I don't never have like that aha moment of, oh, it was May 13th and, you know, <laughs> 1922. You know, I, don't, <laughs> I mean, for as long as I can remember, I can always just remember, you know, being that way or thinking that way. Um, yeah. Now, one thing that I will say is growing up, well, I refer to it as being green. Um, I would say probably well into high school, like never really interested in sex. Um, never really like, oh, you know, you know, getting, you know, all, you know, chasing after, you know, <laughs> you know, men yeah. or whatever. Like, I just ne that, you know, that never, I would probably say, not until like maybe my junior or senior year or possibly even on my way into college. That never yeah. really was a thing. Okay. Um, okay. I, I, you know, I'm trying to think if it had to have been sometime. I mean, I would venture to say maybe freshman or sophomore year where I was kind of like, okay, I, 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 I see something happening here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I know for, for some, cause I have some friends that I spoke to about this and um, when they had their aha moment mm -hmm. or their coming out moment, their families were accepting but not fully accepting. Um, how was your family or how was your, your, your family's reaction when you had your aha moment or, you know, you finally started to figure yourself out, you know? So um, I guess the easier part of it for me was that I was, well, I, I remember I told my friends first. That was number one. And they were kind of an easy kind of, you know, I guess a test run, if you will. Um, Cause the crazy thing is, is like when I tell you, I, I never had really even been immersed in gay culture or the late, the lifestyle like that until I got to college. So having like other people to kind of bounce off of, or to kind of really understand, I didn't have that. Um, but the good thing about it is with my friends and even with my family, um, let them tell it. They knew the whole entire time. Like, I guess it was just, you know, okay, we know it, we, you know, it is what it is, but, you know, I guess they, I don't remember it ever being like a, a, um, 
a big deal to have to talk about or like uh, we got to sit down and like be around the round table or you'll sit around the round table and have this big um, discussion. Yeah. Uh, I know that my family was pretty accepting and I always tell people, you know, don't let my experience be the one that kind of makes you feel like, oh, well, you know, his experience was like this. So, you know, my experience is going to be like that. No, I mean, I'm sure you guys have probably heard of a lot of horror stories. Oh, yeah. Um, I tend to believe that um, the part of the reason why it was easier for me was because that whole time while I was, quote unquote, being green, my family was able to work out their issues with it and you know, kind of go through the struggle alongside with me while I was trying to figure out what it was that I wanted. They were also making their peace with it. So when so I did told they know, like, like, did they know, or was there like, uh, there was a, a moment in time when you sat them down and and let them know that you're gay, right? Yeah, all family members and everything is. Yeah, everybody knows. Okay, so before that, right before that. Did you ever have that that struggle within yourself? Like, you know, should I tell my family or should I not? Yes. Um, yes, only simply because I think for a long time, and I I guess just like any other thing, it was kind of like, okay, well, wait a minute. Are they are they gonna like it? Aren't they gonna like it? Are they gonna treat me any different? You know, um, I did have that battle within myself. And to be quite honest with you, some of my family members, I was well into my adult years when I told them. So it was kind of one of those things where it's like, okay, you know, you don't wanna ruin um any type of connection yeah. you know like i said earlier you hear of all these horrible stories and you don't want to be like that um so you know you kind of go back and forth with yourself sure um but i remember the thought in my head that made me say okay it's t- i have to tell them it's because and this is probably an extreme example because i'm always all over the top oh yeah <laughs> but, <laughs> my fear was that on my deathbed when my family was around me, you know, and mourning my death or whatnot, that some random person would come, you know, busting through the back doors <laughs> of the, the church. Did y'all know Dominic was gay? You know, and then, <laughs> and you know, and, <laughs> oh, and then like to have that look on the people who are supposed to know me the best to see their look on their face like, wow, yeah, we knew Dominic, but we really didn't know Dominic. Yeah. And I always felt like if nothing else, they at least deserve to know it. Yeah. It's unfortunate because I have heard stories where some people had to hide it until their deathbed. Yeah. Um, but uh, fortunately for you, you had the good side of that. You didn't have to hide it, you know? Yeah. And you know, and, and I always, and again, my heart and my prayers go out to those who are still dealing with it and, you know, are at a, you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place. Cause like, even at this point, I'm lucky to say that I've never really had to deal with any hate crimes, um, any discrimination when it comes to that, at least, um, you know, as far as, and again, you know, people talk. So, I mean, you're not gonna be able to stop that. Of course. But as far as, you know, anybody coming to me personally and saying anything disrespectful or as far as me being homosexual, you know, I've never had to deal with that. So I, I, I guess in ways it's good, I guess, you know? Yeah. So, okay. So you did say, um, so I, I do want to mention that Dominic, you are black, correct? I am. I am African-American. Yes. Okay. Oh, African-American. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, oh, yeah. Right. You know, I'm trying uh, to be yeah. politically correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if some of you may not know, but, uh, me, 
me and Dominic are boys. Like I've known him for quite a while. Um, so I don't think there's anything that I would say that would offend him and mm, vice no. versa. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> but uh, so, okay, okay. Uh, so you say you haven't received any discrimination because you're homosexual, but uh, has anything been because of you're black? What I tell the list is in list. Um, the one, or at least the first time that I recognized that I'll say it like this. Now, um, like I kind of alluded to earlier, um, I was the token many things growing up in school. So I was the token gay guy. I was the token black guy, you know, um, I'll never forget. Um, I had a, a vast um, array of friends when I was growing up. Um, I think I want to say like my sophomore year. And I had a good friend. Her name was Jesse. And when I tell you, me and her were inseparable. Wherever we went, we were together. It was just me and Jesse. You know, we had other friends, but me and her were inseparable. Yeah. I would never forget. One day I ended up going to Jesse's house because um, I guess it was just time for us to link up and, you know, stroll the neighborhood. And, um, but she wasn't ready. And so, you know, her mom invited me in. I remember her father was in like the rocking chair in the living room. And, um, Jesse's room was actually off of the kitchen, you know, strangely enough, but the mother was in the kitchen cooking and I'll never forget she was making cabbage and kielbasa. And so, um, she was in the kitchen, she was cooking and I sat down at the table and the funny thing is, is even to this day, when I asked Jesse, she was like, well, she knew you were gay. And so, but the mother, she's, you know, she's cooking, she's stirring, she's doing her thing. And I'll never forget, she stopped dead in her tracks, like as she's looking down at the food and then looks up and then looks towards me and goes, we understand that you and Jesse are friends, but I just want to make sure that you know, we will never condone you ever dating or being with our daughter simply because you're black. Oh, she said that last part? Yes. Simply because you're black, yes. Oh, and again, she, she stopped and she continued to stir. Now, it was funny because at the time when she said it, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, because in my mind, I, I think the first part that hit me was, I'm not even interested in your daughter like that. So I yeah. think my first thing was looking at it from the gay aspect of it and trying to rec- like, let her see that, okay, look, she, she don't got the right equipment. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but. But it wasn't, and the funny thing was, it was not until years later that I recognized that, wow, that was my first time being discriminated against. To pretty much somebody to tell you that simply because of your skin color, you will never be good enough. Even if by like, you know, in some alternate universe, I were to want to date Mm Jesse, to pretty much be told that no matter how good you are, no matter what you do, what you bring to the table, simply because of your skin color, you will never be good enough for our daughter. Man, that's heavy. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, okay. So now, after you, after you, um, you looked at it through a black man's eyes. Um, but what did you feel? Um, like you said, because you saw it through a gay man's eyes, right? Right. Okay. So now, after seeing it through a black man's eyes, what was your thoughts? <laughs> So it's funny because, and like I said, years later, so I was well into college. Um, and it's funny, um, shout out to my mom. She actually always said, Dominic, you went to Memphis, Tennessee, and you found your black. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> because again, like I said, that was my first time really being like submerged in like black culture, gay culture, yeah. all of that. Yeah. So um, 
it was funny because again, you know, it it's something about being around people who look like you and like the same things that you like and understand your struggles that really makes you feel a whole lot more empowered. And so, like I said, I don't think it really dawned on me because when I, again, like I said, till I got to college, because when I was coming back from college, the first thing I wanted to go do was to go run and be with Jesse. And, you know, all of our friends, you know, coming back from college on spring break or summer break or winter break. Sure. And yeah. again, being immersed in black culture. And now I'm hearing all of these things and I'm witnessing other people having had gone through some of the same struggles that I was. It instantly brought back up that same scenario. And that was when I was like, wow. That was my first time ever experiencing that. So now I'm actually seeing it through black eyes and going, you know, wait a minute. It, 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 this is what really was said. This is what really was done. This is what she thought. And it just really just made me look at her and just the whole situation differently. Um, to, and let me say to Jesse's defense, she did say that, you know, I don't know if she ever confronted her mother about it, but she did say that, you know, she didn't agree with it. She didn't like it. Um, but as far as I knew, that was the only thing that was said or done about it. Wow. So, yeah. So uh, this is right after college, right? This is this is actually during... Well, when she said the thing to me about um, what her mom had said, that was actually the same day of it. Oh, like I said, but, yeah. But okay. at that time, I'm again, like I said, I'm more focused on the gay aspect and just, you know, so I don't know if she said it and from the aspect of, you know, maybe she looked at it at the same way that I looked at it from the gay aspect. But um, that's it. It wasn't well into my college years that that happened and that, you know, I came back and I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, um, funny enough, if you want to hear a second story sure. involving the same individual. Uh, uh, the same? This, not her mother, but this time, Jesse. Oh, um, okay. So, again, coming back from college, you know, we're partying, we're doing the thing, we're drinking, yada, yada. So, again, again, going back to the dancer background, <laughs> we, would, <laughs> we would go to parties and, again, it'd be, you know, a whole ton of, you know, people at the party and music would be playing and we would be dancing. And um, although to this day she still blames it on her being drunk, she wants me to dance with her. So at this point, I'm like, look, I don't want to dance with you. Again, didn't I tell you you don't got the right equipment? You know, <laughs> so. <laughs> but um, again, so, you know, finally she convinces me to dance with her. Yeah. But she wants me to like grind all up on her. And I'm like, look, you know, I'm, I'm barely up dancing with you. I really don't want to grind on you. And so she goes, I hope you know that if you don't dance with me, all I have to do is throw myself on the ground and scream. And if oh. somebody, wait a minute, wait a minute. And if somebody calls the police, all they have to do is see that you're black and I'm white and you're going to jail. Ooh. This is from the same girl whose mother had told me what she told me while I was in high school. Yes. Now, again, like I said, when I talk to her now, well, we really don't communicate like that now. I mean, we're friends on Facebook. But um, when I confronted her about that in the past, according to her, when I was drunk, you know, and so, again, you know, I'm one that believes, again, you know, hey, people do crazy things when they're drunk. Um, but to me, that still is no excuse. Yeah, of course. So I kind of felt like maybe somewhere deep down inside, she truly did feel that way. Yeah. And not to mention, you said it in front of tons of people who also didn't you know, see anything wrong with what you said. Um, although a couple of friends that I was with did kind of notice it and then decided to kind of distance themselves from that crowd. Um, 
it was at that point when I was like, okay, yeah, I, I got to change my my friends, my environment, and just all of this. So, yeah. So, like, was she ever known to, like, joke around like that at all? You know? <sighs> you know, not at And it's funny, whenever I look back on it, again, because like I said, we had a large group of friends. You know, she never, from what I can remember, ever said anything, di- excuse me, directly to me. Yeah. Even in a joking kind of way. And the funny thing is that I would have probably pegged some of our other friends to be the first to say it. Um, I don't know if it was just something to where maybe she felt more comfortable with me at a certain point in time. Yeah. Because, I mean, we had known each other since, like, the eighth grade. So I don't know if maybe she just felt comfortable or whatnot. But, you know, I never, you know, never were there any, like, derogatory terms dropped. You know, never did she ever, you know, even allude to anything like that. I just always thought we were better than that, I guess, in ways. So. Wow. Mm-hmm. All right. Man. All right. So let's go back to when you first started losing your vision, um, when you when you had that gray spot and that whole duct tape thing. Um, what was going through your head? What was happening at that time? OK, so after about the eight or nine surgeries and the doctors telling me, like, look, dude, you know, I'm I'm ultimately doing you more damage than none. So um, I'm going to stop. And like I said earlier, you know, if we come up with something, then cool. You know, if they, uh, apparently well, at the time when he told me, he said that they were getting a lot of um, what's the word I'm looking for? They were doing a lot of advances when it came to um, artificial retinas. Yeah. So yeah. that, you know, he was saying he could see like maybe 15 years later that maybe they would be starting to kind of advance with stuff like that. So, like I said, he did the whole thing with putting the oil in my eye. I dropped stuff like that. Sure. Well, while going through that struggle, my labs end up getting off. I end up going to my primary care doctor and come to find out I was now in the process of going through kidney failure. Oh, Dominic, come on, man. <laughs> when do you get a break? <laughs> That's what a lot of people said. So it was like, are you kidding me? So um, by this time, <laughs> by this Jesus. time, it's like, okay, you know what? We got to start you on dialysis. Your kidney is about to fail. Um, you know, it, it, it had gotten bad. So um, luckily, by the time I started dialysis, a couple of the nurses were like, you know, we really think you would be a good candidate for a kidney and pancreas transplant. So I'm like, what? I heard of a kidney, but never a pancreas. And so she was like, yeah, we really think you'd be a good candidate. Um, one, you're younger, so we feel like the operation will go a whole lot better. Um, and we just really feel like we should, you know, kind of put your name on the list. So for those of you guys who may not know, when it comes to diabetes, especially if you're dealing with type 1, your um, when you're dealing with type 1, your pancreas produces no insulin, nothing. Essentially, the pancreas is just there taking up space. Whereas with type 2, which typically you tend to find in a lot of people who um, are older or maybe overweight, their pancreas produces some insulin, but it's not enough to compensate for, you know, their weight or how much sugar that they're taking in. Yeah. So um, I didn't know. And from what I'm understanding, a lot of people don't know that there's an actual pancreas transplant. But um, luckily, I dialyzed for like two and a half years. And then they called me in for the pancreas and kidney transplant. So the good thing is, is that now um, I am the the happy recipient of a kidney and pancreas transplant. 
Um, because of the pancreas, I am no longer considered diabetic. Oh. Um, yeah. So, and, and ironically, so the one thing that caused all this havoc in my life, along with me just being stubborn and bullheaded, the diabetes is no longer here. So, as I'm sure many of you guys may know as well, um, transplants are not meant to last forever. So, it's kind of one of those things where you take care of it as long as you can. You cross your fingers and you do everything you're supposed to do and you eat the right way and, you you know, you do all of that. And then luckily, you know, you'll get the the best chance of longevity out of the organs. But um, at this point, yeah, I don't I don't have diabetes anymore. Oh, um, that's so good, man. Yeah. There's your break. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't have to dialyze anymore because of the kidney. And then, like I said before, I actually do not have congestive heart failure anymore, but I do have high blood pressure. And then right now, the main thing that I'm dealing with is just taking care of the transplants and then dealing with the the sight loss. So was it like right after the surgery is when you find out you weren't diabetic anymore or how soon after? Correct. So um, a lot of times, I guess, you know, again, it's maybe important to say as well, depending on who you're getting your transplant from. And if they're an exact match or if it's a close match, some I've heard of sometimes people getting pancreas transplants but still having to be on insulin because maybe it's not giving them the correct amount or the, the amount that they need. Yeah. And so um, luckily, the, my, um, my donor, which it was a deceased donor because obviously you need your pancreas um, and your kidney to survive, um, but because mine was a deceased donor, they actually happened to be a perfect match for me. So let the surgeons tell it as soon as I got up off the operating table, it was like, it's the connection. Insulin started flowing out, kidney started working, and Thank everything God. was, yeah, like it was meant to be. So so how did you feel knowing like, uh, hey, guess what? <laughs> I'm not diabetic anymore. Uh, what was your thought process and how did you feel at that moment? It was funny because, of course, it was like sheer excitement and joy and all of that. But the crazy thing was I always tried to keep in my mind the fact that this was somewhat of a blessing. Well, not somewhat. It was a blessing. That this was a blessing and that, you know, I needed to take good um, care of it. Because um, it's funny, one story, when I was actually in the hospital, I had already gotten the transplant and everything. And I'll never forget, I could not sleep, could not sleep. So I had the doctor prescribe me some Ambien. And from what I'm being told with Ambien, when Ambien, you know, gets ready to take you to sleep, you need to ride that wave and go ahead and go to sleep. Yeah. But for whatever reason, I fought it. And the next thing I know, I start hallucinating. (laughs) So, right. Um, And so in my mind, all I can see was myself standing in front of the mirror. And it was me looking into the mirror, but it was my reflection talking back to me saying, you don't deserve this. Oh. Why did I don't I don't even understand why they gave you the transplant? Like, all you gonna do is screw it up like you did the last organs. And it was like, when I tell you, I woke up and was like bawling. And um, I remember my aunt, because my aunt, my grandmother, and my mother came to visit, and um, I, you know, I told them what happened, what I dreamed about. And my aunt was like, "Do you think it's because you never made peace with the fact of the damage that you did to your body before?" And so it was like, you know, I had to get to that point where it's like, okay, you know what? I made a lot of mistakes. I could have did things a whole lot better. But now that I've been given a second chance, I got to do something with this second chance. And so I just, I had to be grateful and make the best of what I had. So at this point, you realize that uh, 
you know, you you basically caused this. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, there's some studies that show that whenever you're subconsciously uh, feeling guilty about something, and you take some sleep meds, uh, mm-hmm. that guiltiness takes over your dreams, and you mm-hmm. have some huge hallucinations. But according to Roseanne, if you take some Ambien, you become <laughs> racist. <laughs> so please don't take Ambien, you guys. You don't want to be racist like Roseanne. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> okay, so so now your conscience is clear. Um, you accepted that you did this yourself. Uh, you're not long, you're no longer diabetic. Um, the surgery went well. Now now it's back to your blindness. Um, where are you at now with your blindness um, at this point? What are you doing in life? Um, you know, you've had so many jobs and uh, everything. You were a dancer. You know, you you did all, you know, you're living it up basically. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, the, <laughs> yeah. So the, the crazy thing is, is that even when I lost my sight, and I remember distinctively laying in that hospital bed going, and again, I don't know how religious everybody is, but I felt like this was God telling me, I'm giving you a second chance. I want you to do something with this. And it was that point in that bed that I said, if I don't do anything else, even if it means that, you know, somebody will look at me and go, well, I don't know what you did, but whatever you did, I'm not going to do it. I needed to make sure that my story had to be told and that I inspired or motivated or educated somebody off of what I was going through in the past, what I currently was going through and how I wanted to see myself proceed forward in the future. So, um, got out the hospital, you know, um, now it's time to start, you know, figuring out how we're going to live blind. So again, you know, you start taking classes, you know, mobility and technology Mm -hmm. and daily living, learning how to cook, how to get around. And, um, I feel like at that point in time, at least from the people that I was running into, I felt like the general consensus of being blind was that, you know, you, um, that meant that your life was over. You know, you, you know, you, you go into the house, you're shut in, you don't speak to anybody and you just wait for somebody to come take care of you. And that was it. Yeah. And, Ah, you know, I don't know if we can cuss or not, but I'll no, be No, yeah, you can cuss. Uh, <laughs> fuck shit, bitch. <laughs> there you go. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> but I had said to, I'll be damned. I feel like I'm, although I'm not no, still no young spring chicken and I had been through some things in my life, Yeah, I still felt like I still had plenty of life to live. There were still things that I wanted to do with my life and I felt like it could still be done. Um, so did so you ever that, um, go through the grieving process of losing your sight? Because from what I'm hearing from you is that uh, you basically have the mentality of nothing can stop me. Did you ever go through depression, denial, um, any of that sort of nature? You know? You know, again, I got a shout out to my mom. You know, I, I'm i a really emotional person. I, I go through the ups and downs. If I'm happy, I'm happy. If I'm sad, I'm sad. If I'm angry, I'm angry. And I, I completely immersed myself in that emotion. Mm-hmm. The crazy thing was, is that I had my moments of depression, but it was like I knew that there was a deeper issue or a bigger picture that I had to address. So it was kind of one of those things where it was like, although I feel like in many ways it probably was not as healthy, I kind of 
when I, you know, that kind of like morning period, when you kind of go through it, when you lose something, it was a nice distraction to be able to submerge myself in learning or educating and knowing that I had another purpose that, you know, I needed to handle. Yeah. Um, what I will say is though, I, I think one of the moments that really kind of got to me, um, I was, I was in my mom's room and it was, excuse me, it was funny. I think I'm going to catch the hiccups. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it was funny because she was getting ready to go somewhere. So she's like all in her bathroom and she, you know, she's getting all dressed up and stuff like that. And she's playing music. And I'm not sure if you guys remember the song, um, until it's gone by Monica. If you guys don't know it, please go listen to it. Um, and I won't go through really all the lyrics and stuff like that. But the funny thing is that, like most songs, you know, she's talking about, you know, I guess, you know, being in a relationship with a guy, he did it wrong. He's not going to miss what she was bringing to the table until she's gone. Yeah. All of a sudden, I just started to break down and cry, like crocodile tears, like sobbing out of control. And so when my mom came and was like, well, what in the world? Like, what's going on? All I can remember saying was I felt like Monica was singing from the perspective of my vision to say I was there for you. I tried to be there. You just didn't want to do right. And now I got to go. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was like, and I don't know what it was about that song or why I even got that perspective, but it was just one of those things where I was just like, oh man, what am I going to do? But, um, like I told you what, that, that, that thought that I had while I was in the hospital, I think for myself, that was the biggest hurdle for me to overcome was just that really just beating myself up about the whole process and what I had done to my body and how I just would not listen to where it really just held me back because I couldn't forgive myself. And so I think once I kind of got over that and made peace with it, I think it made the whole rest of the process kind of easier. Looking back at it, do you think that, um, you know, both of your parents being in the military and having that good, strong support system um, had an effect on you on dealing with it better, faster and quicker than most others? Um, I, I think yeah, I do believe that that also played a role. I do. Be, I do know that my mom is definitely one of those women or just people, period, that's like, okay, look, you know, we got this going on, but, you know, hey, we got to handle business, so I'm going to need for you to cry your tears and wipe it up because we got stuff to do. And um, I was always one of those that was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, please come console me. And so I think when when growing up with a parent like that, it really meant, now, I, I can still be that in many ways, but growing up with a parent like that, it really made you go, okay, you know what? You know, she's right. I gotta dust all of this off. I gotta, you know, get on. There's a bigger picture, you know, um, and just kind of to proceed that way. So I don't know if maybe it was the military background. It kind of sounds like it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it may be, um, like I said, especially with my father being a drill sergeant as well. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I guess it was just one of those things, you know, where it was like, okay, well, Hey, we got, we got a job to do. You got to keep it moving, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, let, let's go back to when you were taking mobility lessons, uh, daily living skills, just learning how to be independent and in, in all around. Um, so where did you go from there? Okay. So, um, 
it was funny because my mom had just recently got divorced from my youngest brother's father. Okay. And I'll never forget. She was like, you know, hey, I'm 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 free. (laughs) (laughs) So um, you've had your classes. So, you know, hey, um, you're taking care of yourself. So, you know, hey, I'm out the door. Ashley drags her suitcase out the door on her vacation. So I'm like, well, wait a minute. I'm like, you know, okay, well, I'm, I'm here and I'm blind and I'm by myself. But the beauty behind it is it showed me that I could do it. And then it ended up getting to a place where I was like, well, shoot, you're on vacation for like three, four or five days. Hell, I might as well be able to live on my own. Yeah. And so surely enough, um, the process started. I started to save my money and I moved out on my own. All right. And so, yeah. And again, it was one of those things where, again, was it hard? Yes. Was it scary? Yes. Was I terrified still to this day in some aspects? <laughs> but <laughs> but the beauty behind it is that it showed me that I could do it. And I think now I, I tend to carry that along with me to say, you know what? It gets scary sometimes. Yes. Is it, you know, is it, the, are you nervous? Yes. You know, um, what are all the things that could happen? Plenty. But you know what? We're going to get out here. We're going to try it. And if it doesn't work, we're going to go back to the drawing board and we're going to try it again or try plan B. But like I said earlier, I and maybe this is just me. I just refuse to have I refuse to have that defeatist attitude to where, okay, well, this is my fate. Let me just go on ahead and, you know, hey, go on and hand me my blanket. I'm just going to lay here until, you know, (laughs) I go on to glory. So, yeah. (laughs) So, uh. What were your friends at? Like, Jesse, all your friends, did they just fall off to the wayside when you uh, lost your sight? So I'm actually going to blame myself and blame a little bit of them. Hmm. Uh, Because, especially during that period of time where I didn't really make peace with it, very, very ashamed of the blindness. So it was like, well, I don't want to tell them that I'm blind. I took like a hiatus from Facebook or any social media. And then the friends that I did speak to, it was like, you know, I was doing my best to make sure that, like, you know, um, I was making sure that I didn't leave any signs of me being blind. So, like, if they sent a picture, I would make sure I commented on it to give off the impression that I knew what it was. But instead, I'd be like, well, mom, you know, what did this picture say? Yeah. And, uh, show. and she'd be like, okay, well, it shows this, this, this. And then, you know, okay, well, this picture shows Steven in a red shirt. Then I'd get on there and be like, well, Steven, I love your red shirt. <laughs> 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 so then by that way all my friends would be like oh, okay well he's commenting like he's not blind so it was no big deal yeah um but kind of like with my parents or my family and the gay thing i think this also gave myself the opportunity to make peace with me being blind as well okay um the 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 crazy thing about it although i don't equate it to being blind um i know that you know when you when you go through different levels in your life now that I, as, as i'm getting older i'm recognizing that some people just are not going to be along with the journey yeah of course um you know and not to say that anything's wrong with that you know we all kind of get pulled down different paths of lives and you know we get jobs and you know um you know families or spouses and you know pets whatever yeah. you know what so yeah. have you and it starts to pull people in different directions so um do a lot of those friends still keep in contact with me? Not so much, you know, maybe through Facebook and here every once in a while. But, um, yeah, I, I think in a way, um, you know, I, I kind of went through and maybe have gained some more, you know, friends in different places. And for those of you guys who are wondering, no, I, 
we I may comment or you know wish Jesse happy birthday and maybe Merry Christmas and vice versa, but we don't talk like that anymore. Hmm. Okay, so since your friends basically did fall off the wayside, um, was there any point that you felt alone because you had no one to lean on? Um, because uh, when well, when you lost your sight? So for me, it was more about. I, like I had a strong family backing when it came to the blindness and stuff like that. Yeah. And then I had people, I had this funny knack of being able to like, and I don't know if it's just me or if I'm just an approachable person, but like when I tell you, I go to Walmart and I always walk out with a friend. Like my mom, <laughs> <laughs> my mom is like, Dominic, you meet no strangers wherever you go. But it's like, you know, and, and so people, I guess are drawn to me, not to say like it's crowds of people, but you know, people, I guess find me approachable. Yeah. Um, so it was never the fact of not being able to make friends or meet new people. I think what I felt alone was that during that time, the only people that I knew that were blind happened to be older. I didn't meet anybody around my age or younger or maybe even a little bit older that was dealing with what I was dealing with or even blindness in general. Um, most of the people that I had known were like in their 70s and 60s and their 80s and i'm in my 30s or late 20s at this time yeah so it's, well you know do they really truly know what it's like you know um so for me i think in that aspect that's the only way that i felt lonely um you know just really feeling like okay well wow you know nobody really truly knows my struggle um you know it's gonna be already hard enough for me to de- for me to convince or um show somebody who cited to kind of understand the struggles and stuff like that. If they are my age, much less, you know, trying to find somebody who is blind and get them to understand my struggles when they're in their seventies or their eighties. Yeah. So, yeah. So when was it when you finally found, uh, that person who was blind, young and relatable to you? And when you found that person, how, how did you feel at that moment? So, <laughs> so I ended up like, as I was saying, um, when I, you know, got the aha moment that I can live by myself, I ended up moving down to Columbus, Georgia. Now, my maternal side of the family is originally from here. So um, a lot of it, although I'm total, I still remember a lot of the area and just kind of all of that. But when I got down here, I was like, okay, well, I'm on my own. What am I going to do? And so I turn on the news. I'm in my apartment. I, you know, hook up the TV. I turn on the news. And it's funny because I'm watching it. And for those who may be a little bit familiar with the blind community, especially the Facebook blind community, on the news that day was Rashad Jones. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, and so he actually was speaking about an advocacy company that they have down here in Columbus that um, does advocacy for all disabilities, but it just so happened that um, they also employ people who were disabled as well. He knows better than somebody who's disabled. So um, he was actually the blind, um, I guess, chapter of the the company. Yeah. And um, when I saw that, I was like, okay, well, you know, hey, I can call them. And if nothing else, they can kind of give me some insight about, you know, the company and tell me about the area and stuff like that. And so Rashad, who actually is, well, at the time was 29, but is now 30, um, met him. And, you know, we kind of, you know connected on that level and so it was like okay cool you know we we bounced ideas off of one another you know and it was really kind of cool because especially at the beginning it ended up becoming more than just a a um 
a like work relationship or a, you know, somebody that's looking for advocacy, but we really kind of became friends. And I think that was big for myself. So, um, so, so do you feel like that moment was like a confidence booster? Um, you know, when you realize like, Hey, there's, there's someone out there who's just like me, uh, who's doing it just like me or, you know, possibly doing more than what I am. I think, well, for me, um, like I said, at that t- I had already made up in my mind that I was going to help some sort of way. I think I had already, in my mind, I had already started helping, but it was for like the people who was in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah. So um, when I was introduced to him, it kind of made me go, okay, well, cool. There is a whole demographic, you know, or age group that is dealing with this. So now the the audience, if you will, is wider. Um, I know that at that point, and it was funny because – Boy, it's been a crazy two years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was at that point in time that Rashad actually me, invited me to Blind Pen Pals, a Facebook group. Yeah. And so, you know, was in there and kind of doing my thing. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, it's people from all over, you know, and recognizing that the, the blind community was really, really huge. And, you know, all of these things were taking place. And so I'm like, okay, well, cool. Now I can kind of... You sound uh, a little muffled. Is that better? Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Okay, um, that 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 was the time where I was like, okay, well, cool. There's all these people. You know, the community is a whole lot bigger than I thought it was, and so now I actually can kind of branch off and do the things or set out and accomplish some of the stuff that I was doing or that I wanted to do on a bigger scale, and even with more people internationally or people in my age group, younger, older, all of that. All right. Okay, so now that you found the vast majority of blind people ranging from this age to that age, living here all the way to there, what was your next step? What were you going to do? What was your plan? What was going on through your head that, you know, you wanted to do? So it's funny. Rashad had always talked to me about feeling like I had a purpose. And even when he was saying that, he didn't know about me wanting to do something bigger. Um, But he was like, I feel like you got a purpose. I really feel like you need to follow it. So, um, it was funny, maybe a week or two after joining Blind Pen Pals, um, I ended up, well, Rashad actually tagged me in a video and the video was actually done by an individual by the name of Chris Jones. And, um, he was just talking about his opinions about the whole blind community and all that kind of stuff and how things were going down. And, um, he was like, you got to see this, this guy's going off about the blind community and he's saying this and he's offending all these people. But Rashad actually tagged me in the wrong video. He actually tagged me in a second video where I guess Chris was coming on to apologize, but then also hand out or give out different um, opportunities or make people aware of different job um, job options that the blind could have. Yeah. So when I first saw it, I was like, okay, well, cool. You know, let me share this. You know, let me connect with this guy. So um, we started talking, you know, we became pretty cool. And as time went on, he as well was like, you know, dude, I really feel like you can do something. So, he, you know, we sat down and we talked and I told him, I was like, well, one of the things that I always thought was interesting was that in Blind Pen Pals, it's like a couple of thousand people that's in this group. And I was like, the funny thing is, it's like, I always felt like with all of these people in this group, it was like like we were all in a room. It was like these people didn't even know who was standing next to them. Yeah. 
So I said, okay, you know what? I would like to actually interview some people that's in the blind community and just at least give them the opportunity to kind of, you know, tell us what they offer, you know, if they got any information, if they, you know, can do anything for the blind community. And then that way we can kind of start that fellowship or that connection, if we will. So, of course, Chris was like, go for it. So I was like, okay. So I started it up. And that's when This Is Us, um, which is actually what I'm over now, started. So when um, This Is Us got started, in the midst of that, Chris was actually going through some things as well. And I, um, he posted about it in Blind Pen Pals, and they told him that they didn't approve of it. So he then decided that he was going to leave and create his own group, and then he decided to invite me as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, well, all right. And when I was brought over into this new group, which is the Blind Lounge, he was like, well, I would really enjoy if you would kind of be over the content that we put in here. So I was like, okay. So again, I'm thinking, okay, well, cool. You know, I'm all these ideas that just sprung out of nowhere. I was like, okay, well, cool. I'm going to do it, you know. And the thing that I will give Chris and the Blind Lounge is that it gave me that confidence and the backing to be able to kind of start doing that stuff. Like I had the opportunity to learn how to edit, you know, because when I tell you before, it was like, you know, hello, my name is Dominic, you know, scratch, scratch. And, you know, I'm trying to move the phone and you can hear the, the phone moving <laughs> and stuff and the phone's not on me. It's looking at the ceiling. So the good thing about it was that it definitely gave me the opportunity to perfect my craft. Um, I, again, got to meet more people within the blind community. That's where I met you, Stephen. Um, and then also to really kind of just, you know, let my mind just kind of soar with a lot of the things that I really wanted to accomplish. Um, the sad thing is, uh, I'm actually no longer a part of the blind lounge. So before we get into that, um, okay. let's talk about, uh, uh, what are some things that you put out like in regards of content, um, and what, is the, what was the reaction of everyone in the group? And um, how did you feel finally meeting all these people um, that were responding to you and seeing your vision finally coming into fruition, you know? So um, content-wise, so obviously I had brought over This Is Us. Um, I actually started up a talent show, <clears throat> sir. <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, so that, that throat clear was because Steven actually did participate in the talent show. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, um, whoa, whoa, whoa. There was some controversy that happened with that, but we'll discuss that after yes, the show. Yes. <laughs> uh, but um, I, like I said, I started the talent show, which actually I ran for three seasons. So it was, in my opinion, it was pretty successful. Um, I started a show called Jiminy Cricket's Corner. Um, and that pretty much, I always had this fascination with advice columns. And so um, I always felt, okay, well, if people ask me questions, then this will be my opportunity to kind of give them my spin on it, you know, and kind of, you know, to tell them like what I think or maybe give suggestions or advice. Um, and the, the name came from the fact of I love the character Jiminy Cricket. I love how he was Pinocchio's conscience, all the while still learning and stuff as he went along. And so it kind of just lined right on up. Um, so I was over that. Um, what else? There's a couple of other things. Uh, do, 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 do. What else? Okay, I, I actually was on a panel called Triple Crown, which was actually a panel of guys that just talked about guy issues and, you know, how they worked in the blind community and stuff like that. Um, let's see. I was a part of a show called Real Talk, 
where essentially we did talk about things, um, but we had to, whatever it was that we talked about, we had to always promise to come to the table with the real, you know, and not have, you know, no bias. You know, we couldn't, well, I, guess, I guess in a sense that what makes it good is if you have a bias. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, to, to be unfiltered, raw, and just uncut about what we believed and what we thought and, you know, how those topics affected us. Um, okay, okay. There, there's got to be some others that I'm forgetting, but those were the ones that I was actually over. I mean, I was a part of other shows, but those were the ones that I actually created. So at this point, you know, you're busting out all this content. You're being so creative, you know, and basically the mastermind of everything that's going good in this group. And I know because I was I was in that group, so I saw everything you were doing. At the beginning of the podcast, you were talking about uh, not being a sidekick anymore. Um, why aren't you in this group anymore at this moment? Um, I would like to. I would like you to elaborate, but you know, it's, it's up to you. It's up to you. You don't have to if you don't want to. Um, so what happened? Why aren't you in this group anymore? Um, and, and what went on? <laughs> So, and you are right. Um, growing up, I felt like I was always the sidekick at best. I, I always tend to come with a lot of empathy and understanding for other people's situations or circumstances a lot of times while putting my my own on the back burner, which is cool. In a lot of ways, I'm cool with that. But because of that, it also a lot of times leaves me to feel um, somewhat neglected, if you will. Yeah. So the way that the Blind Lounge kind of um, fell into that was the fact that when I got into the Blind Lounge, because essentially it was Chris's group, I pretty much divulged all of my time, my effort, my energy, everything into making sure that we advanced the Blind Lounge forward. Sure. Now, again, you know, and I'm not going to fully blame him for it because, again, that was a conscious choice that I made. Sure. And, um, you know, again, you know, for about, a year the blind lounge was solely what i had like that 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 was what i you know like i said i put my blood sweat and tears into um as time progressed a lot because the blind lounge was a private group as time progressed a lot of my family and friends who were wanting to keep up with a lot of the things that i was doing could not simply because it was okay well you know we know you're putting out this content we want to see, we want to participate, we want to engage. But if we're not a part of the Blind Lounge, we can't. Yeah. And I'll never forget my grandmother, my mother sat me down and it was like, we want to support you and we feel like your content will help, but we can't. And if your true goal was to help as many people as you could, you do know that there are people outside of the Blind Lounge that could take this help as well. Mm-hmm. So though, okay, yeah, you got a point. Um, and even at this time, even I can't tell you the back and forth that I went through internally of thinking, oh, my God, you know, I'm, betray- I'm betraying the Blind Lounge. I'm betraying Chris. You know, all of this that, that's running through my mind of like, how, how, how can I possibly even fathom running and taking my own stuff? So I sat down with him and the rest of the management team. And I was like, OK, look, you know, I really do believe that it's time for me to really kind of just take my stuff and also go out to a bigger platform. Now, I'm still going to post in the lounge, but I also want to make the stuff readily available to, you know, everybody else who, you know, wants the content as well. So I know you and him were really close. And so you were really close with someone else that was in that management role. How did him and the other ones that were in the management role take the news that you were leaving Um did it put a damper in y'all's friendship? Because I, I know you guys were 
really close like brothers at one point. Yeah, and, and you know the crazy thing is, is at, at the surface, when I initially told management, and more particularly him, he seemed to be down for it. He was like, you know, hey, man, you know, that's your stuff. You know, you do that. You know, um, there's no way, you know, how dare I ask you to not do that or, you know, to tell you you can't take your own content out. And so, of course, at the beginning, I thought, okay, well, cool. And um, so this actually took place during season three of the talent show. So I thought, okay, cool. The talent show is almost done. When the talent show is done, that's when I'm going to, you know, go ahead and make my steps, you know, to doing what I need to do. So, of course, you know, I got the backing of management. Everybody's cool with it. Everything is good. Now, um, for reasons not including me or not involving me, Chris has started to take a step back from participating with the lounge mm -hmm. and so i guess when he decided to come back into and really start to play an active role in management and seeing what was going on with the lounge it happened to be in conjunction with me getting ready to i guess symbolically pack my bag and you know take my stuff onto my own platform yeah so it got to the point where i was like okay well you know remember i told y'all getting ready to you know take my stuff on and do my thing and the reaction was, wait a minute, what do you mean? Where are you going with your stuff? Mm -hmm. And so at that point in time, you know, I wouldn't say like a really big blow up, but an argument ensued. And, you know, at that point in time, that's when I, you know, confronted him about, you know, hey, you know, you haven't been really doing this. You haven't been really participating. You know, um, there's been a lot of things that have been going on within management that I really didn't necessarily agree with or like. And I think that maybe it might be time for me to step down from management as a whole. Um, he then responded and was like, you know, hey, you know, things have really been kind of estranged for the past couple of months. I think that if you're going to step down and leave management and take your stuff onto a bigger platform, you probably should go ahead and just leave the group as a, as a whole. Oh, so shit. in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, surely, you know, this is not the end story. So, but I had already made up in my mind, you know, hey, look, maybe this is the end of this chapter, whatever it is, I got to be able to do my thing. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, I did what I had to do and I started the page up. The funny thing was, is that um, when I first left, not, not left, but when I started taking my stuff over to my page, I still had access to the group. It wasn't until later on that night that I found out that I had actually been kicked out and blocked from the group. Mm. And the sad thing about it was, aside from all the content that I created when it came to the talent show, I had access to nothing else. Damn. All of those shows, discussions, topics, games, none of that. I literally had access to nothing. So now... After what I think the lounge was created in October. So about June, I think, was when um, I left the lounge. Um, pretty much, what, almost a year? July, August, September, October. Four months shy of a year. I now was no longer part of a group. And aside from the talent show, had nothing to show for it. Wow. Yeah. So knowing that you got kicked out of the group and got blocked from the group by Chris, um what were you feeling? You know, basically lost all your content. Um, you said you were an emotional guy. What were you feeling? What were you thinking? What was going through your head at this moment? Um, devastation, really, is probably one of the main things. I think, you know, luckily, you know, how we talked before, that military background, I think by that time I had already made up in my mind, okay, well, this is what you're going to have to do. And unfortunately, maybe some people aren't going to like it. 
you know, some people like I'm sure now, you know, if if you were to also happen to ask Chris his side of the story, I'm sure he would have his side of the story as well. And I already knew that again, because I don't you know, I'm not, I'm not perfect. So I know that there were probably things that I could have done better. Um, but like I said, at that point in time, it was devastation, really more along the fact of, wow, you know, what does that say about me and his friendship? Yeah. What does that say about everything that I've done? You know, um, you know, the people who I was able to affect inside of the group, you know, are they still going to follow me? Are they, you know, because again, it's like, okay, well, he's no longer here, you know, so are we going to follow him? It's, it's my programming or the things that I produce, my content, is it strong enough to where, you know, hey, it can stand on its own merits? Or is this something to where I'm going to have to start from scratch? So it, def- it definitely wasn't a range of emotions. Hmm. Okay, so looking back and knowing Chris's personality, did you have an idea that this was a possibility of happening, that he would do this? I knew that me and him, our our friendship had started to become estranged because he was right. It had been some months. Because when I tell you, when we were first friends, it was like every day, whenever you saw Chris, you saw me. We were like click tight. Um, But like I said, towards the last couple of months, it had started to get a little bit estranged. do I think it would have gotten to that point? No. Um, I could possibly see us at that point maybe having had, you know, maybe not communicating as much or maybe like um, not necessarily interacting with one another, but being completely kicked out of the group and having to deal with that. I don't necessarily think that that ever really crossed my mind. If anything, I would have thought, okay, well, you can no longer be management. But, hey, you can stay in, you can do your thing, just you will no longer be a part of management. Yeah. Man. Um, and, like, at this time, uh, the incident in Minnesota happened with George Floyd. And there was riots basically everywhere. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you were in Atlanta, Georgia, living there um, at this time, right? They were doing a lot of protesting here. Um, now uh, keep in mind, I'm actually in Columbus, Georgia. So I'm actually about an hour and a half South of Atlanta. So they were doing a lot of protesting. There were some riots. Um, you know, there was a lot that was going on. I know that, um, they did protest here, but they were pretty peaceful here in Columbus. But, um, yeah, we were not that far from a lot of the, the, the riots that were taking place. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to go back and forth from, uh, this and the blind lounge but i'm going to tie it back to the blind lounge um i did have some time to speak to you when this incident happened and you were worked up and you were extremely upset you know justifiably so um and you were getting ready to um split from the group and essentially spread your wings uh for lack of a better term um what was going through your head um especially with the incident with george floyd uh, the estranged friendship with Chris and you're about to start your journey as, as, you know, no more sidekick. I think there were a lot of things that, especially within the group itself, that were said and that were done um, that I really didn't necessarily agree with. Um, again, you know, you got a group of near a thousand people, you know, you're going to have varying opinions and thoughts and, you know, just all of that. And I think I expected that. Um, I know personally being in a management position, I always kind of felt like there was a certain role that management was supposed to play. Now, 
because I had never really been an admin of a Facebook group like that, I relied heavily on Chris and the other management as well just to tell me, you know, hey, this is acceptable. This isn't acceptable. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. Because again, like I said, I had never done it before. And then plus I can, you know, there are times where I can react in an emotional mind frame. So I knew that I needed some backing on that. But even when I was getting the instructions, when I was being told what to do and what not to do, I just felt like there were a lot of things that were being said or a lot of, um, a lot of, behavior that was being tolerated that I definitely felt like was not supposed to be tolerated. So for instance, there were posts obviously from different individuals that were going up that were necessarily talking about like how they didn't agree with the riots. Um, you know, they felt like people were just complaining, uh, you know, that, you know, we were just causing unnecessary issues that were taking place. Right now, in my opinion, I kind of feel like, okay, well, as a group, if we're not going to allow any of this, let's take it down. Like, you know, whatever we're going to stand on, that's what we stand on, you know. But I'm a big believer in if you're going to do something like that, it has to be unbiased. You know, I if, if I like tomatoes and Stephen likes, I don't know, string beans, we can't say, well, there's no vegetable talking here, but take down Stephen's votes, but leave mine up. Yeah. You know, th that's not fair. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're going to follow it, it needs to follow it across the board, regardless of the opinion or the bias or what we personally believe. And I think that within management, that was one of the things that we struggled with the most. And I think the reason why the George Floyd and the Breonna Taylors and all of that was very controversial was because I already felt a certain type of way, especially being African-American, but also looking at it from the aspect of you guys are letting this go by. You know, the the black side of me is saying, oh, hell no. Nah. And then the management side of me is saying, I don't know if I can stand behind this. I don't know if I can. Because up to that point, whenever anything happened within the lounge, it was a united front. This is what we believe. This is what we're going to do. You know, whatever, whatever. And I think I've always had a strong sense of morals and ethics that I always said, OK, I'm going to stand behind it as a man and I'm going to stand on my foundation and, you know, for the good or for the bad. And so it was kind of like for so long, at least in my opinion, there were things that we were allowing that I just could not stand by any longer. And I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to just go ahead and just turn my badge in and, you know, give my two week resignation. Before you decided to step down from the management role of the group, what were some things that you were doing to to state your opinion and state what Dominic is thinking, what Dominic is doing about the situation, aside from being a person in management of the group. It's funny because you're actually reminding me a lot of this stuff. <laughs> 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 and so, like I said, at this point in time, I think everybody was slowly starting to see the cracks in management, or at least what I like to say. Yeah, um, yeah. And so for myself, I was like, okay, well, you know what? Probably, the, the okay, so maybe where I was wrong was that I felt like my morality and my ethics were way too strong that even though we had all decided we were going to have a united front, there were just certain things that I was not going to stand behind. Sure. So a lot of times when people would post, you know, the crazy off-the-wall stuff, a lot of times I would go in and be like, okay, well, management says this, 
but as Dominic, I believe this, and this is what I'm going to stand on. And so, you know, just for instance, if somebody were to say something like, okay, well, you know, um, you know, I think, you know, that what they did to George Floyd was good. I will come in and say, okay, well, as management, I'm going to take the, um, you know, the professional route and say, you know, I don't agree with that. And I don't think that's right. But as Dominic, I'm going to tell you, you need to take that shit down because I don't like <laughs> it. I'm, you know, I don't appreciate that. So you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And yeah. so I think that was, and again, like I said, I think that was the time that you really started to see the little tiny cracks forming in management because now I'm at an aspect where I'm like, okay, no, I, I can't sit back and just watch this. Like, what does that say about me and my core values and what I believe in to be able to just sit back here and just say, wow, Dominic, you know, you're okay with this type of treatment? Like, look at what happened. Like, you know, I hate to go back to it, but look at what happened with me and Jesse's mom or me and Jesse. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, wow, you know, you just sit back and just, okay, well, you know, it doesn't affect me because I'm not George Floyd. No, I mean, I always tell people, George Floyd could have been any of us. 100%. Blind, young, older. As an African-American male, I could have easily been out in that street. And that same thing could have happened to me. It could have been my brother, my father, my uncles. You know, um, so again, in knowing that, I felt like I was not doing any justice to who I am yeah. as, as a man, as, you know, at being black or to even any of my other fellow black people by not being able to stand up and say, okay, you know what? I don't agree with this. I don't appreciate this. So I need to voice what I think and stand on it. So you had a, a voice in the group. You had a loud voice in the group. You had a platform to stand on and, and, and speak on what, you felt and what your opinions were how did it feel going against the grain going against the management team of the group and speaking about speaking up against racism and speaking up against what was wrong during our time during that time in our nation um yeah it felt liberating in ways um i had always been kind of an outspoken kind of guy but i felt like for that period of time while I was there to kind of have that moment where it was like, okay, well, you know, I can't say this because I'm management and I got to make sure I, you know, type everything out and it sounds politically correct and there's no issues and it spell check. It kind of felt liberating to be able to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to say how I feel. I'm not going to be filtered. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to just stand on my own and do what I got to do. I think the sad part about it though, was that I knew that by standing up and saying that, Although I knew some people would back me up, I also knew that there were going to be some people who probably didn't like what I said and were probably not going to want to be connected to me, but in that process as well, because like I said, I was essentially going back on one of our rules as management, that that was also going to have an effect on me and Chris's friendship as well. Wow, that's pretty heavy. So, okay. So, um, so you finally left the group. Uh, you got kicked out. Uh, well, you know, okay, you, you left the management team, you got kicked out of the group, and then you got blocked from the group, and now you're on your own, standing on your own two feet again, um, just like, you know, throughout your life, you know, you, you find yourself where you have to stand up on your own. Uh, what what happens next? And so, again, and this is really kind of my first time, because like I said, I was always the sidekick, so this is really my first time of just being able to stand here and go, okay, you know what, it's on me. Whatever choices I make, they fall back on me. I get to deal with the repercussions, the consequences, and all that. But then whatever rewards I get, whatever accolades, whatever compliments, it all comes to me. So um, 
I actually went ahead and started a um a page on Facebook, um, blind underscore justice, the way I see it. And really, I've just everything that I was doing before, all my ideas, all my content, all of that, I was able to, you know, start doing it. And so it's funny because I've been I've been really kind of putting into it here recently. Um, a lot, probably like within the last beginning of August, what we're talking about here, maybe about two months now. Yeah. Um, or going on two months. So it really kind of gave me the opportunity to go, okay, you know what? Wow. You know, now I'm really kind of getting that, that, uh, um, that affirmation that like the people who like the page or the people who are following it or commenting it or, um, sharing it, they're doing it because it's me. They're not doing it because, you know, they may enjoy the lounge or maybe because somebody in blind pen pals told them to do so. They're actually doing it because, it's all about me and they're enjoying what I put out there and then they're interacting with it. So, you know, each time I get a like or a share or hell, even a view, I'm ecstatic. Like I'm loving it. So, yeah. How did you come up with the name blind justice? So I'm a big, big, big Marvel fan. Hashtag Stan Lee. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I love, love, love the X-Men. I've always, always, always loved the X-Men. Yeah. So, um, I always felt like, a name like that sounded so dynamic or so like, like something you would see, like, you know, like in a, like in a movie somewhere you'd see like, you know, Oh, help me. I'm being mugged, you know? And then, right. And and so then you see like a a light flash across the sky and it says blind justice and it shows a white cane. And then I fly into, you know, that was, (laughs) (laughs) so I always felt like it, to me, I felt like it embodied, what I was trying to get across as like a lo- an avid lover of comic books and that whole superhero genre and just really saying what all I was going through and how I approached life. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking back, I don't know if you see this or, or not, but uh, you know, the military background, standing up for yourself, standing up on your own two feet, standing up, uh, against uh racism and hearing letting everyone hear your voice because you did have that platform um going against a team that didn't back you up um you know voicing your opinion against everything do you think that was a precursor to the name you were about to choose um you know i never looked at it like that it might have been i i don't ever remember making like the the conscious decision to say yeah i'm blind justice and this is why you know I just like them. Hell, I like superheroes, so it's gonna be. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I guess, and it's funny that you like you bring it up the way that you do because I guess in a way it is kind of like that. I'm saying so. You know, um, yeah, I'm actually, huh? You you just really made me think about some Steven. So thank you. There you go, man. You can have that one for free. (laughs) So okay, I I want you to um, name some of the content that you're putting out there and describe what it is exactly because. uh, everyone knows, and, and you do interview people, right? Yes. Okay, cool. And if anybody wants to reach out to you, we'll, we'll get the contact information later. But I want, right now, I want you to describe some of the content that you do put out on your page, Blind Justice. Just you know, just describe it a little. Okay. So, um, like I said, at this point, and especially since I've only been doing it for about two months, a lot of the content that I do now, like you did say, was the um, the interview show, which is actually entitled "This Is Us." Um, and again, that's just kind of my opportunity to really just talk to people in the black community and really kind of get their perspective on things. If they offer a service, if they, 
you know, do whatever um, to really kind of just give them opportunity to really just talk about what they bring to the community. And I think the beauty behind it is that because now it's not solely in one group, I also get to kind of broadcast it to people who are sighted. And so I think it gets to change their whole belief on what the blind community can offer, what we're capable of, you know, what we really bring to the table and all of that. Um, I did bring over Jiminy Cricket, but this time I actually put a spin on it. Uh, So with Jiminy Cricket, initially it was just me going, well, you need to do this. And if you need, you know, you should think about this. And I always felt like, who wants to be talked to like that? Like, really? So I said that I was going to rename the show, and it's actually called Jiminy Cricket's Corner, Mm -hmm. Learning to Take My Own Advice. There you go. And yeah, so, and now essentially it's the same, you know, um, format. You know, I'm still talking about those topics that a lot of us struggle with, and even having people write in who have questions but also giving it the spin to say, this is what I'm learning as well. You know, um, you know, I'm still learning about, you know, friendship or dating or growth, you know? So again, I, and I think personally, it makes people feel better to go, okay, well, wow, I'm learning, but now I don't feel like I'm being talked down to. I'm actually learning, you know, alongside with him. And it makes me feel better to know that we're going through this journey together. Right on. Um, and then last but not least, I actually, again, something else that I actually started before I left the lounge, um, when the quarantine started with all of COVID-19 and stuff like that, I've always, you know, look, getting back to that dancer thing, Mm. um, um, I've always been like, you know, real big on like, oh, you know, let's get up and dance, you know, let's have a good time. And so I felt like, okay, well, cool. Instead of like everybody being in the house, staring at the four, uh, walls, you know, why don't we, you know, get up and have a good time? And who better, you know, who doesn't like music? So I thought, okay, well, cool. If I don't do anything else, on Friday nights, I'm going to get up and I'm just going to, you know, play some music, play some DJ mixes and, you know, try to get people up and, you know, out of, off the couch or out of their seats or, you know, just up having a good time. So I would, each Friday, um, I go live and I actually do something called um, Blind Justice in the Mix and, you know, just play a little bit of some music and like i said hopefully get people in some good spirits and you know and what time does that start on fridays so you know you know me i'm all over the place but i tend to try to do it at about eight or eight thirty on friday evenings and that's um, eastern right yeah eastern time okay, yes cool, cool yeah and so yeah just trying to do that um i am actually in the process of bringing back the talent show now um the, the talent show was originally called the Blind Lounge Talent Show for obvious reasons. But for namesake, I really kind of wanted to call it something else. You know, just simply, to, again, like you said, learn to stand on my own too, spreading my wings. So um, I actually will be doing, well, I guess it would be the fourth season, but I guess it's a new name. Maybe I should start off with the first season, but this one will be called Coming to the Stage. Oh, and, Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, still the same concept. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know a lot about the talent show, it really was an opportunity for those people in the blind community and outside to really kind of just get on there and really just showcase their talent. You know, um, again, to kind of lift their spirits, get people interacting, and you know, just really kind of have this um, engagement amongst the community. And so, you know, whatever type of talent, if it was playing an instrument or singing or rapping or you know um i've had people to say that they wanted to do comedy skits just anything to get the people um 
interested and just kind of wanting to engage. So I know coming up here, probably at the end of this month, I said that I was going to do a small series, kind of really introducing it to the um, people who are not aware of the series. Mm -hmm. Kind of, you know, let them know exactly what it's about. You know, let them know how the process takes place. Because like I said, now it's a public page, so anybody has access to it. Yeah. And so really kind of just explaining to them how the whole process works, what it is, how it goes, and probably having some people come on and, you know, sing and entertain. And then after that short series, go ahead and jump into the new show and get it started. Do you have any other uh, shows up your sleeve or the... uh you want to keep it under wraps for now? Uh, well, um, <laughs> I mean, we again, um, I'm still trying to work out the kinks. But again, you know, those shows that involve those um, tough topics, those, you know, opportunities to really sit down and have those tough discussions about, you know, um, what's going on in the world, politics, race, um, you know, things like that. And to be able to kind of give everybody a a um, safe environment to really talk about it and to be able to feel safe and, you know, expressing their opinions and stuff like that. Um, I'm thinking about doing something similar to that. Um, I would like to bring back something that, um, which we had something similar to it in the lounge, but something similar to a, um, a, how do I describe it? So I know they have shows where it's like, okay, well, this week I'm watching Orange is the New Black on Netflix. Yeah. So, you know, um, watch episode one, and then next week we're going to come and talk about it, and then we'll watch episode two. Oh, kind of so, like a like a book review for TV shows. Right. But, correct. So, um, like I said, we had something similar like that to the in the lounge, so I'm thinking about doing something similar with that and bring it back where, um, you know, we just kind of pick a show on each of the different platforms and watch it and kind of give our own little synopsis, if you will, and kind of discuss. So awesome. Man. Hell yeah. yeah. So, okay. So now we've reached the end of your story for now. So looking back at, from everything you've been through from, uh, traveling as, as a military brat, um, battling diabetes from f- saying fuck it i'm not going to take care of myself to going blind um the divorce with your parents having to tell your 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 family that you're gay um the issues you had within the blind lounge um what are some what are some things that you would like to share some wise words some inspirational quotes that anyone that's listening to it so i actually have a, a couple sure go ahead the first one is going to be know your worth I think at the end of the day, a lot of times we second guess ourselves and what we're capable of or the effect that we may have on society or who's listening. You have to know your self-worth. Know your self-worth. If you know what you're worthy of, then you'll know how to, um, I don't want to say ignore, but you'll know how to block you know, things that you're not worthy of or people or situations or circumstances that aren't worth your time. You'll know how to um, stay focused on whatever it is that's going on and where you need to go. And you know how to truly accept and be appreciative of the type of treatment that you're worthy of. So definitely know your self-worth. And then um, Another one is, and again, like I say on Jiminy Cricket's Corner all the time, one that I'm actually struggling with now, but I'm, I'm kind of getting it. You have your own path in front of you for a reason. 
you cannot compare your path or what you have to get accomplished in your life to what somebody else is doing. Don't let what somebody else has, maybe their success, um, their longevity, uh, you know, their circle. Don't let that take you off of course of what you got going on. There's a reason why what they have going on for them is taking place with them. And a lot of times when we get so focused on others, we then choose or we then start to find out that we end up getting ultimately knocked off of our own path. There's this quote that I actually posted it on Facebook the other day. Trees never worry about how fast the weeds grow. They grow at their own steady pace. And that's why trees can grow to be so majestic as opposed to weeds being weeds. Yeah. So, um, you know, definitely stay attentive to your own path and not um, be distracted or worried about others. And secondly, you guys, learn to live in your own truth. You know, your truth is not going to be the same as the next person's. And you have to learn to, and, and again, it comes with time. I know it, it took me a long time to learn to live in my truth or to accept the things that was happening to me and, you know, the role that they played. You know, as, as you saw, I didn't want to accept the truth that I had diabetes or I didn't want to accept the truth that I was coming blind. But at the end of the day, once you learn how to live in your truth, it's going to be the best thing that you've ever done for yourself because you'll learn that you, you'll you be able to accept the life that you've been given. You'll learn to be able to sit back and um, appreciate the things that are taking place for you, the people who are put in your life for you. You'll learn to accept the roles that everybody plays, but you'll never get any of that until you learn to stand within your own truth. Mm. Well, there you go, man. Um, so where can everyone find you at? Facebook, email, any any point of contact, anything that you want to plug? So I am definitely on Facebook. Um, my page is actually entitled Blind Underscore Justice, the way I see it. And again, it's exactly how it sounds. Blind, well, blind justice is one word, but again, B-L-I-N-D underscore J-U-S-T-I-C-E semicolon, the way I see it. Um, and then on, which I actually, it's funny that you actually called me today. I actually just created my YouTube page today. Oh, hell yeah. So, yeah. So, um, the YouTube page is actually entitled the same thing. Um, blind, B-L-I-N-D underscore justice, J-U-S-T-I-C-E. So, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm growing. I'm liking where I'm at and, you know, I'm trying to do my thing. So, you know. Oh, right on, yeah. man. Hell yeah. All right, guys, go ahead and follow Dominic. Get on his page and ask him a bunch of questions on behalf of me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dom, so thank you for doing this. Finally, we did it. All right, let everyone know who, who you are and what this is, brother. I am Dominic Parker, and this is my blind life. Appreciate it, man. Hell yeah, we finally did this. So, uh, guys, go look for Dominic's page, blind underscore justice. Um, go look at his YouTube page. Go find all of his content. Ask him questions. Uh, if you need advice, go ahead and ask Dominic. He's a wise man. All right. He's like like a like a, like, like a big brother to me for sure, one hundred percent. So, uh, <laughs> ladies, y'all, y'all guys have a good one. Bye.